Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind this Wednesday morning. I'm Donna Lowry, host of GPB's Lawmakers, in for Bill Nygut. Late yesterday afternoon, a federal grand jury, a federal jury, I should say, found former President Trump had been found guilty of battery and defamation. We'll tackle that news and other headlines this morning. But first, let me introduce our panel. Our Wednesday regular is the AJC's Greg Bluestein. How are you, Greg? Uh, thanks for having me, Donna. We're always glad to have you on. We also have Matt Brown. Matt is democracy reporter for The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Good to be here. And we're also joined by one of our favorite regulars, Emory University political science professor, Andra Gillespie. Andra, I know Emory had its commencement last week. Have things slowed down at all for you? Uh, not quite, even though campus is thinned out. <laughs> well, that's good. And last but certainly never least is Capital B's Chauncey Alcorn. Chauncey, it's great to have you with us. Pleasure as always, Donna. Yeah, and I know you're going to leave soon, so we're going to get right into things. Let's start with uh, President Trump's uh, latest lawsuit. A federal jury has found the former president liable for battery and defamation and the lawsuit brought by writer E. Jean Carroll, who says he raped her in a Manhattan department store in the mid-1990s. The nine jurors who deliberated for about three hours before reaching their unanimous conclusion, they did not find that Trump had raped her, but they agreed that he sexually abused her and that he defamed her when he refuted her story. And, and Carroll was awarded $5 million in total damages for both claims. And this all comes amid Trump's 2024 presidential campaign. Greg, does this slow down the momentum at all? I know he's going to be on CNN tonight even. Yeah, it's a big moment for him tonight because it's his first big test of how he responds to this. We've seen him on social media posts saying this is part of a witch hunt. And the usual the usual response we've, we've heard from him for you know years um, but, you know, after the Manhattan indictment came out, that was seen as a, a sign of real separation in the polls, at least, between um, uh, Donald Trump and, and Ron DeSantis, his, his closest rival. Uh, but this is different. Um, a, this is this is not an indictment. It's a it's a it's a verdict. Um, and B, this also involves a very different sort of allegation uh, involving sexual uh, sexual assault. Um, so there's reason for the Trump camp to be very concerned about how this goes going forward. And, and, it, and it's not as easy for them just to write this off as a witch hunt or, you know, the, the usual rhetoric, rhetoric he uses. And particularly among, you know, one of his most vulnerable electoral spots, which is college educated women and women in particular, um, this is going to be hard for a lot of voters who are on the fence about his comeback bid uh, to stomach. Yeah. Uh, Andra, this is, as Greg alluded to, one of many lawsuits against the 40, uh, 45th president, uh, the the um, Manhattan um, the Manhattan um, criminal charges 
about the hush money made to adult film actress Stormy Daniels, a civil trial in New York that alleges a decades-long pattern of fraud by Trump and his businesses, and the possibility of charges in Georgia, of course, under uh, Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis. So it's it's still there's still much there. And not to mention the federal investigations of documents at Mar-a-Lago and the federal investigation of January 6th. So I, I think the question long term is whether or not these charges and if there are convictions and instances where uh, Trump is being held civilly liable, as in this case, whether or not that actually compounds to uh, create a scenario in which it becomes untenable for him to run. Um, I don't see that being there yet. So I think eventually, right, this could be a death by a thousand cuts where it's just too much. And people finally say, OK, we have we've had enough and, and, and we can't support this either from the donor elite base or from voters themselves. Um, what I see in um, from uh, Trump's social media um, response to the verdict yesterday uh, was what I expect of Trump. Um, and so I think Trump is still kind of in the mode where he's going to continue to be litigious. He's already said that he's going to appeal the case, um, even though legal analysts pointed out, and I'm not a lawyer, but pointed out that he's going to have a hard time appealing a case when he refused to actually show up and defend himself um, in the first place, because it's just it's a question of well, what kinds of like procedural mistakes, uh, you know, happened when you weren't actually there and you were given every opportunity to be there to defend yourself. Um, like, what does that look like? Uh, but uh, and I think in the short term, his tack of saying that, hey, this is New York, it's hostile, everybody hates me here, is exactly what I would expect. And so I think that his base of supporters who have been loyal throughout his political career are still loyal today, right? And they're just going to chalk up this latest verdict to people in New York hating Trump and this being part of the witch hunt. I think the question becomes, does Donald Trump turn into Chicken Little later? And every time something bad happens, can he credibly say, they're out to get me, they're out to get me, they're out to get me, before people start to say, yeah, no, you did this to yourself and you, it's time you took responsibility for your actions. And part of the consequence is, you know, you can't hold office anymore. Yeah. We won't vote for you to hold office. Matt, weigh in a little bit on this, on all the investigations and all the all that's uh, facing him. Absolutely. So I think just firstly on the political point here, I think that it is interesting, as Andra said, that, I mean, not just when you look at the um, conservative base, but also when you look at, you know, elected leaders in the Republican Party right now, we're seeing the same pattern of reaction to another Trump scandal. I mean, um, Senator Tommy Tuberville said that this made him want to vote for Trump twice. Senator Marco Rubio said that he thought this was a joke. Um, Mitch McConnell has typically not said anything about this. And then um, people like um, former Vice President Mike Pence and Senator John Thune have said, well, people aren't focused on this. Um, it's Trump is Trump is just, you know, people are going to have to decide if they want to deal with all this drama, I believe Senator Thune said. So we're seeing a lot of the same patterns here um, coalesce around the reaction, at least in the Republican Party around this case. And I think that that shows that, uh, that this might be going the same way that we've seen a lot of other Trump scandals go, though notably a verdict, um, a criminal um, verdict against him is a very, very different story. Legally, I think the thing that was most interesting to me about this case was the ruling not on sexual misconduct, but on the defamation suit, not because it was something that 
Trump had done years ago, but because it was something that he more recently did um, in reaction to the news that E. Jean Carroll had accused him of sexually assaulting her. I think that that um, really shows for all these other legal cases that we're dealing with that Trump can be his own worst enemy here. And after, you know, an investigation is started or after he faces certain scrutiny, he can start to incriminate himself even more in a lot of these situations, which I think has serious relevance to both Fulton County and the federal case, where, as we know, he's deeply resisted cooperating with prosecutors and has basically accused all of them of being witch hunts, which doesn't look good in a um, court. Yeah, that's interesting as we um, know that he's going to be on CNN tonight, whether he will temper some of the ways that, or at least somebody legally is telling him that he should temper some of the things that he says. Um, Back to the day's headline, Chauncey, you know, Carroll originally brought this case up when he was president in 2019. Of course, things changed in New York and she was able to bring this case and and then uh, brought this new lawsuit uh, up in 2022. But this there's been this strategy we have seen of the former president kind of prolonging things in court. Does this speak to a strategy of that continuing and possibly working a bit in his favor? Well, as a, I think the most important thing in this is is what does this do with Trump's base of supporters who are a plurality of the Republican Party? Um, it's amazing to me that we're at this point in history. Any one of these quote unquote scandals would be enough in a normal in a normal time to uh, sink somebody's chances of even you know uh, running for ele- office, let alone winning. But Trump has been impeached twice. He's um, been indicted in New York, uh, possibly indicted in Georgia, as noted earlier, multiple investigations, and now he's being uh, uh, found guilty uh, in a civil court of uh, sexual assault. And he's still, at this point, the the front runner for the Republican nomination, and that is just insane. Um, I think it also speaks to the fact, um, as as, uh, some of the other guests noted earlier, that the more the quote unquote establishment as it's perceived, whether that be in the media or that be um, in uh, Democratic prosecutors, the district attorneys, the more that they uh, uh, go after Trump, it turns him into kind of a martyr to his supporters um, who are the more than anything seem uh, determined to give the establishment the middle finger is basically what they're looking to do. So I, it, it isn't so much. Uh, and the aspect of legal reasoning or even political. It's what do you, what would it take to convince these people to not support this man? Uh, as, as most Democrats have noted, he is what they want to uh, see happen. He's the nominee that they want to run against because he certainly he can um, uh, still win this Republican primary, but it's, it's uh, extremely unlikely that he would ever win uh, re-election again. Um, I, I say extremely, but it, I think it's still a possibility. But um, I think that I don't think that this is a deal breaker for them. I think it actually cements them and makes them dig their heels in further to say, you keep telling us that we can't have Trump and we're going to have him and you can't tell us what we can't have. Well, we're certainly going to be paying attention to this a lot. Could happen this summer and certainly 
Um, the Fulton County DA, Fonnie Willis, has told us that in July we may hear some things. So we'll see. I, I want to talk about somebody else who a few people want to see a run for uh, president. And Greg, uh, Governor Kemp, he said he's not going to run. But you reported in the jolt that he'll be at this posh resort of, of sea, um, in Sea Island uh, this weekend raising a bundle of money for donors. So what does that say? Yeah, it was actually over the past weekend that he raised more than a million dollars for uh, two different committees that he's using to kind of stay relevant in the uh, not just in for potential 2026 run against John Ossoff, but in 2024 um, to help to help, you know, promote his priorities, promote his agenda and promote candidates he supports. You know, he said for uh, a few times uh, unequivocally that he is not going to run for president, but attendees of that of that conference that donors retreat over the weekend called me on Sunday night and Monday morning and said, you know, he gave a slightly different answer. <laughs> he said that it would be up to him and his family in the end, whether he is going to run. Um, I, I checked in with his team and they said, essentially, it's a slightly more nuanced remark, but they still look, he's still not taking any concrete steps to running. He's not building teams out. He's not visiting Iowa or South Carolina, or making grounds, building up staff. Um, but he could be the way it's been described to me by senior Republicans kind of outside his circle is that he could be this sort of break the emergency glass type of candidate. If everything else falls apart, if the Santas doesn't get traction, if no other Trump rival gets traction, and if there's a legitimate movement from the big money donors and, and, and frankly, of course, you'd also have to have giant groups of the electorate who want that. He could be someone who is sort of a, 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 a kind of last ditch alternative um, but at the same time, doing this stuff now, keeping his donors energized, keeping his name out there also helps him not just shape the field in 2024, because he says his top priority is to deliver Georgia for Republicans next year, but also, of course, in 2026. None of that could hurt him ahead of a potential challenge to John Ossoff in 2026. And I can tell you that that Kemp's allies are very closely watching every single thing John Ossoff does in public. Yeah. So we know that, you know, depending on what he does, the Trump supporters are still there. They're still very, very much supporting him in Georgia. Um, Matt, I'm just wondering, you know, we we you, you've written about the election deniers, where they stand, those kinds of things um, with all these lawsuits and everything. Will we see any wavering, do you think, with uh, Georgia voters, American voters when it comes to Trump? Yeah, I think that the paradox of Trump and the, you know, in many ways, fundamental dilemma for the Republican Party is that even after the 2022 midterms, we've seen that there is a constituency of the country that is even more committed to Donald Trump and to so-called election denialism. Um, the, basically, the idea that Trump did not lose in 2020, that um, there were forces, you know, seen and unseen that conspired against him, um, and that that has blossomed into a movement, a media environment, um, you know, a a, a, um, a, a entire apparatus, basically. And I think that that, because that is such a strong and potent force within the conservative movement, that it has made it difficult for the rest of the conservative movement, which is broadly repulsed by Trump or just not plussed by him, to actually mobilize themselves in a, in a, in a complete direction, to make sure everyone's rowing in the same direction, shall we say. So I think that we're going to be seeing, as we've seen you know, in a lot of states all across the country, as we're seeing in Georgia right now, basically there's going to be a debate over whether or not um, 
elected officials like Brian Kemp who have been able to distance themselves from Trump and kind of chart their own political path, make way with, you know, more moderate voters, more voters who might not identify with the conservative base. If those, uh, if that part of the Republican Party is going to be able to make peace with um, the election denier set, that is incredibly important to winning an election, but also incredibly loyal to Donald Trump. Yeah. Andre, let's let's talk a little bit now about the other side of the aisle. Um, as a political scientist, uh, tell us your breakdown on the, the polls that we hear that are coming out this early in 2024 in this presidential cycle. Um, I know you've uh, written a little bit about it. We saw something on Twitter that uh, you really it got into it extensively. It was really good. Yeah, that was motivated by watching two days of media coverage, um, you know, just about these polls and sounding alarms. And it's like, okay, I think everybody needs to calm down and understand what it is that they're looking at. So first of all, we're a year and a half out roughly from the 2024 election. So I wouldn't pay that much attention to, you know, what the polls say about the general election vote where we don't even have the candidates yet, particularly on the Republican side. So I expect that there's going to be some volatility in the numbers and that they're going to change. That doesn't mean that, you know, President Biden shouldn't look at those numbers and see cause for concern to see that his um margins against either uh, Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis are within the, st the statistical margin and thus tied, even though I think in a highly polarized environment where close elections are a hallmark, we should expect that polls aren't going to actually be able to tell us who's strongly ahead or, you know, who isn't ahead um, in an election. Um, and, you know, even the number of uh, the, the the job approval number at 36%. I think the trend line is important. So we know that President Biden has been underwater for most of his presidency. There isn't anything that's uh, particularly new there. But I think we herald any type of like, you know, dip in support as automatically being evidence of something that's real and not necessarily noisy. And I think it's important in that like we should know that when ABC and Washington Post and when these other media outlets talk to people and they ask the same questions over over time, they're not using a panel design where they're talking to the same people. So you could look at those changes if you're talking to the same people over and over again and get real time numbers. Um, I don't know if the LA Times still does it, but at one point, kind of like during the 12 and 16 cycles, they were doing a panel type of thing where you could see that. We pull independent samples. And so when you pull independent samples, samples of uh, margins of error, which typically get misinterpreted kind of in the modern press, actually get bigger. So you have to have like really big changes um, in, in order to really see sort of like, in order to say definitively that there this is actually lower than it was before. So I would caution people about that. Um, and then, you know, a lot of people were heralding this number that actually wasn't reported uh, that talked about sort of lower levels of support uh, for uh, Joe Biden versus Donald Trump and higher levels of support for Donald Trump among black voters. And like when I went and looked at the cross tabulations and saw them broken down by race, it was white, non-white, Hispanic. So I'm like, huh. How come you didn't report the black number? So I know the overall sample size is about a thousand voters. I know the target should be somewhere in the vicinity of about 130 black voters. But the fact that you didn't report that means that I'm not so sure that that's what you got. And either way, if I'm looking at a subsample of 100, right, my margins of error there are plus or minus 10. Um, and so people are reporting these numbers and there's just going to be these wide sort of arms in terms of what the possible real number is on those midpoint numbers. 
we shouldn't be making any kinds of conjectures on subsamples of 100 people, right? To speak for 50 million people in the United States or, you know, 30 to 40 million voters. So I would just caution people to just understand what they're looking at and then take that with a grain of salt. Yeah. And that's why people should follow you on Twitter. <laughs> so that when, you, when you come up with this as a political scientist, breaking it all down, we love that. I, I want to get to Chauncey real quick because he's got to go because he's right now near the state capitol and several Democrats from Georgia's General Assembly are at the capitol and they want Governor Kemp to hold a special session on gun control following the tragic Midtown shooting. So tell us a little bit about that, Chauncey. Yeah, so, I'm, well, as it relates to the uh, Democratic presser, yeah, there's uh, basically, uh, we know last week there was uh, obviously uh, multiple mass shootings and even one in Stone Mountain that did, that hasn't gotten nearly as much uh, national media attention. Um, and the Democrats are trying to press the issue on gun safety. Um, uh, it's largely expected to go nowhere, uh, my, keeping in mind that uh, uh, Governor Kemp uh, is very pro Gun, very pro Second Amendment, and um, his as is the Republican majority and the in uh, the Gold Dome, the, uh, the both the House and the Senate. So, um, but it's it's still for uh, uh, the Democrats. A lot of it is important to try to drive this issue home, home for the voters, particularly um, as we continue with uh, certain issues like abortion to see some traction. Um, um, both in Georgia and other parts of the country, other states like Wisconsin. Uh, that these issues are starting to have a, uh, an effect and, and um, break this firewall that Republic of Republican control that the Republicans have over a lot of uh, state legislatures. So uh, I think that that's what the Democrats are looking to do. As it relates, I just wanted to weigh in real quick on the uh, on the Biden's poll numbers. I do think, um, as noted earlier, that this is largely going to be a referendum um, with uh, black voters who are the uh, by and large the uh, most loyal um, voters in the Democratic Party. And uh, it, they're not sold on Biden um, at this point. I, I do believe if it becomes a, you know, Biden versus Trump thing, that that's an easy bet for Democrats. And that's why they are, uh, you know, so uh, encouraged to see Trump uh, polling well and, and still being viable. But um, there's been a lot of, uh, you know, things that have not gone, have worked out well for black voters. Inflation has disproportionately impacted them. Um, and one thing I think that's going to really, um, in addition to the economy, which we know that a recession is looming, one other thing that's going to be big uh, is Ukraine. I, I, I Going around the state last year talking to black voters, both in Atlanta metro and across the state, I, can, you, <laughs> I cannot um, overemphasize how many black people <laughs> were so upset that all this aid money is going to Ukraine and not to black folks in Georgia who, um, you know, need um, uh, health care um, benefits, who need child care benefits, things of that nature. It's something that comes up over and over again. And uh, as this war drags on, I think that that's also, and as we continue to send aid money to Ukraine, that is something that is definitely riling up a lot of black people in Georgia. Okay. Well, Chauncey, we're going to let you get over to that press conference. People can look for that report on um, Capital B from you. And uh, so we're going to let you go. We're going to continue this conversation. Although, Greg, I I wanted to get your take on this possibility of a special session. Yeah. So Democrats this morning, when when they have this news conference in a few minutes, what they're going to do is they're not going to call for ban outright bans on certain weapons or higher age limits or anything like that. 
they're going after what they see as bipartisan consensus driven and they call it common sense legislation that polls show a significant majority of Georgians support um and that also uh, uh you know has some bipartisan backing so they're going to be talking about mandates for universal background checks um measures that make it a crime to allow unsupervised children access to loaded guns <clears throat> and a red flag bill that will let authorities temporarily take guns from people deemed by courts to be dangerous to themselves or others so that's what they're going to focus on it it as chauncey said it probably won't go anywhere governor kemp hasn't said specifically whether he will call a special session but he's not going to <laughs> i can i can almost assure you of that um and, and that's just been the republican response throughout yeah. So I we're going to we're going to move on. I um I want to thank Chauncey again for being on the show. He is uh he's off to reporting, but we're going to continue with the show. We've got our first break here and when we come back, we'll look at some more big moves from the Biden administration with the rest of our panel including what will happen to Title 42 and immigration this week. This is Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. We're back on Political Rewind. I'm Donna Lowry, and for Bill Nygut, I'm joined by Emery's Andra Gillespie, AJC's Greg Bluestein, and the Washington Post's Matt Brown. Capital B's Chauncey Alcorn had to go. We appreciate the fact that he was able to be with us for a little bit. But let's jump now back into talking about some major moves from the Biden administration. And Matt, Biden met with Speaker McCarthy for the first time since February to talk about raising the debt ceiling. And what happens if they aren't able to reach anything uh, by June June first? Uh, uh, what have you heard about how that uh, that conversation took place with with the other uh, three top leaders too? Yeah, absolutely. So as as we as we have reported, um, Biden met yesterday with all the top congressional leaders of both major parties, and and what that means is that they're they're finally sitting down together and having a conversation about what a real negotiation on raising the debt ceiling is going to look like, given that they have some pretty fundamental disagreements here in terms of where that money is going to come from, what raising the debt ceiling looks like. Um, and their staffs are, as we understand, you know, talking today and tomorrow ahead of another meeting that's going to be happening Friday to um, see if they're going to be able to make any headway on. As I said, some pretty some pretty fundamental questions here. It's it's over whether or not um, Biden has basically accused Republicans of taking the U.S. economy hostage by saying that they but that raising the debt limit is not something that should be negotiated alongside potential um renegotiations of um, government spending whereas republicans have basically argued that the only way that you're going to be able to have a long-term solution to the debt ceiling is by fundamentally questioning what our spending and obligations are. All of this is obviously happening on the backdrop of the fact that, quite frankly, we don't know. The best economists in the world don't know what is going to happen if we default on our debt, because it's never happened before, at least in this way, with modern um, U.S. Treasury bonds. So so that is going to be very unprecedented territory that is, um, as we've written about, um, as I've explained with some of my colleagues, going to have um, 
you know, unprecedented impact on the global economy and the U.S. economy. And I think that reasonable people can disagree on what that impact looks like. But the political stakes here, I, I can't express, couldn't be higher. Yeah, it's we've got and we've got, what, two, two and a half weeks or so until June 1st. So a lot of negotiating to take place during that time. Uh, so we'll be uh, paying attention to that and looking for your reports. So thank you on that. Andra, let's let's shift a little bit to you uh, staying with the Biden administration, but looking at immigration. Title 42, which is that pandemic era rules. It is it is set to end tomorrow dealing with immigration. And for those who. um um, for, for to help understand it a little bit, for those at home, the uh, the rule allowed for us to reject asylum seekers without a hearing. For people, you know, that's the basic part of it. The Biden administration expects as many as ten thousand migrants a day. Andra, in in some sense, it's like turning on this faucet again, right? Um, Biden sending this National Guard, uh, National Guard troops uh, down to Mexico, to uh, the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, will that be enough? Well, I mean, he has already suggested that we should expect that it's going to look messy and chaotic. So I think in some ways he's trying to get ahead of the issue. On the other hand, there are critics who have been talking about the border since he took office. Um, and if you watch other media, oftentimes they have been leading with Title 42 and leading with immigration for the last couple of years. So any type of preemptive warning that it's going to look chaotic for the next couple of days is not going to offset the years and years and years of negative publicity that the administration has faced uh, for, in the words of critics, pretending that there was no border crisis um, going on. And so we know from the reporting that has happened across different types of media platforms um, over the course of this week, that there are people who are camped out um, on the border waiting uh, to get processed. And so, yeah, I expect that there are going to be tens of thousands of people in the next few days who are going to uh, try to get processed. I know that there is uh, a, a a web form that can that if you have a smartphone a smartphone you might be able to use to try to start the processing of the applications. But yeah, this is this is going to look messy, and we're seeing it reverberate to other parts of the country. So uh, if people are going to cross the border, you know, in Texas, for instance, there are folks who are being sent to other parts of the country, and we see the fight between New York City um, and the outlying counties about where people are are going to be housed and processed during this period, where they, while they're awaiting their their hearings. So you know, it has started. Um, and this has definitely been something that the president's opponents have been waiting for the end of Title 42 uh, so that they could talk about kind of uh, the mad rush of people trying to get in. Um, but, you know, I've, I've been heartbroken. I was just watching a report before this show on CNN where you could audibly hear people calling out uh, for water because they've been camped out for days, kind of just waiting for, for this to end. And you worry about uh, the type of suffering, right? You don't want people to die of, of 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 starvation or dehydration as this is going on. So I think you know this is definitely going to be a, a a next tough couple of weeks. Yeah, Greg, how do you see this affecting Georgia? Yeah, well, we're already seeing Georgia Republicans rally behind a proposal in Congress that would increase border wall funding, hire more patrol agents uh, to patrol the border. Uh, new restrictions on asylum seekers and new requirements for businesses to use an e-verify system, electronic verification system um, to, to ensure that their employees have permission to work uh, here in the U.S. legally. It's not going to pass, but we've definitely seen Republicans 
rally around those sorts of ideas. And what's interesting is in the last few election cycles in Georgia, at least, you know, immigration has not been high up on the polls of concerns of Georgia voters. That's not to say it's not important to a significant number of Georgia voters, but the economy and uh, health care, education um, have, have taken, you know, a, more of a precedence uh, for, for many Georgia voters. But as, as Professor Gillespie said, um, especially when you're looking at conservative media outlets, it is the top issue. And so to a certain segment of voters, um, they will make their decisions based on this immigration policy. So it's something that Democrats can't afford to ignore either. Yeah, I know the the other part of this deals with the agricultural community in Georgia. Uh, there are a lot of migrants involved in that. And so that's a bit major concern, isn't it, Greg? It is. And we saw even in Georgia when anti-immigration legislation was passed in the mid-2010s, um, it had a significant repercussion on Georgia agriculture businesses. And many Republican, rural Republicans who were very conservative um, saw that as a uh, unintended consequences. And so it's a very dicey issue um, that, that could end up kind of having some uh, some repercussions, some backlash to the, the state's biggest industry, agriculture. Yeah. Uh, Andra, anything more to add on that front? You know, I think that this is one of those issues where, especially for people who are directly involved in agriculture or other industries that tend to employ um, a lot of immigrants and possibly undocumented immigrants, I think the question is, is we're looking for litmus tests, right? And that's the thing that's come up when we've talked about some of the um, extremists in the Republican Party is whether or not you would see people who would take a principled opposition or encourage people to think about the issue in a more holistic fashion because they're directly implicated. Like it's really easy from one's perch in Atlanta um, or the Atlanta exurbs or from Washington, D.C. to say things about immigration. But it's a lot different when um, you know the people um, that are involved and, and you understand their importance to the economy. So I think it's a question of whether or not you would have cooler heads prevail. Sadly, I mean, we would have expected that to happen in the mid-aughts when immigration reform was first proposed uh, by people like Marco Rubio. And and and, and we're clearly not at that stage in, in, in that uh, particular moment, but it will be interesting to see whether or not you hear more nuance from people who uh, represent areas that are directly implicated um, in the consequences of these types of immigration policies. Yeah. Matt, I was thinking that this is a chance for, um, you know, the, the former president, Trump, to uh, to talk about the, the the border wall again, to bring up some things that he, you know, he he certainly talked about a lot during, you know, his first campaign. Yeah, I mean, immigration is and was and continues to be the defining question of or, or issue of Donald Trump's campaign. It's it's the reason that he got in. It's it's the thing that that he talks about most often, um, and the reason why so many people are attracted to him in a lot of ways. I, I think that on this particular point, it's important to note that because Trump is so wedded so wedded to the issue he's going to he's going to try to make this a thing it's a reason why conservatives continue to talk about it and i do think that it gets at broader questions of you know what type of democracy do we want to be what type of policy do we want to have Immig immigration in a lot of ways is an economic question it's a social but it's also a very deep social question that gets at things that are more deep than just well how many people can we support or how many people do we want to let in or, or who do we want to let in it, it gets at real social fabric questions that i think is what a lot of voters when they discuss immigration what they're really talking about what is 
what is the character of the country and how do they feel that that character would be changed if people come. And I think that that is going to be the thing that um, when it comes to Democrats having this debate, they're going to also have to argue with Trump on because in a lot of ways, Trump's immigration arguments are not actually arguments about migration flows and what's actually going on at the border. It's a question over what is the, the social fabric of the country. And that's something that Biden's going to have to find the language for that in past times, um, him and Democrats have struggled at. We'll see if they can do it in 2024. Yeah. Do you agree with that, Andrea? Andra? Yeah. I, I mean, there's there's a lot of subtext and code um, and anxiety about America looking a lot different than it looked in the 1950s and the 1960s. Um, and about who actually sort of gets to be at the top of the social hierarchy. Um, and so Donald Trump was able to tap into that. He was able to tap into that level of resentment of people who thought that they should always be in charge, who now are being asked to share power. And uh, right. And we see that, you know, that animus actually influencing a lot of what's going on um, in terms of people's stances on immigration. So it's really hard to disentangle um, bias from legitimate concerns about policy and process and about making sure that these things are, are done orderly. Um, and then there are these larger geopolitical discussions, like the reason why we're having these migrant flows is because of political instability, um, because of climate change. Um, and in some of these instances, the U.S. has actually, you know, been a destabilizing force in, in, in the regions of origin um, of some of these people. So it's a question of, OK, what's our responsibility to help fix it? And then can we do things to make um, these home countries countries, our neighbors, uh, safe places where people who are born there want to stay, as opposed to having people being willing to risk lives and being exploited by smugglers to be brought into the United States, um, you know, through the not legal channels, um, you know, in order to start new lives. And so I think we have to consider all of that and consider the humanity of the people that are involved. Um, and unfortunately, our political rhetoric isn't trending in that direction where they're trying to have those kinds of discussions. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm sure we're going to talk more uh, about that as uh, this, uh, as the day, as as this um, this uh, policy ends. We also note that tomorrow ends the national public health emergency for the coronavirus, which is also interesting. A big shift, and 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 it's a kind of change. Um, as whether or not it is an indication that the pandemic is waning is still out there, right, Greg? I mean, it's you know. It's something is ending, but what does that mean? Yeah, I mean, we've returned to, to normal for the most part that our society has, particularly here in Georgia. Um, but at the same time, healthcare policies changes will go into effect the moment that emer national emergency ends, including uh, expanded healthcare access to many people who, who, who did not otherwise uh, have access to expanded Medicaid coverage and other federal services. And so that will be a significant change. And again, something that, that Georgia lawmakers, as along with federal lawmakers, will have to grapple with. Yeah. Uh, Andra, that, you know, communities of color, I, I, I've noticed that they're still wearing masks. They're still they bore the brunt of what happened during the pandemic. So uh, this is probably not good news in some of those communities. So I am one of those people who still mostly wears masks out in public. Uh, yesterday, I went to my drugstore and got my free stash of tests uh, because, like, you know, <laughs> I, I knew I wasn't going to be able to do that at the end of the week. So I encourage everybody um, to go do that uh, just so you have some if you need it. 
Um, and, you know, one of the things that's motivated my decision is I pay attention. I use the New York Times tracker sort of on COVID. And, you know, even though we're not talking about 2020, 2021, even 2022 levels of infection, right, around here in, in, in Metro Atlanta, at least in DeKalb and Fulton counties, right, there's been an increase in hospitalizations. And so I saw that and I was like, oh, it's still still not, you know, like, so I was like, you know, knowing that we're in an area where even if we're talking about this on a smaller scale, we're still looking at an increase. I was like, huh, I don't necessarily feel comfortable yet uh, walking out, uh, you know, inside in public uh, with my mask off most of the time. So, uh, you know, it's going to take an adjustment. Um, but I think if people are, are want to be more vigilant, I think that they should feel comfortable in, in, in being that way. And we should respect people's decision to do that if that's what they choose to do. Yeah. You're not the only one that feels that way. I know several others who are concerned about um, what's going on. All right. So we're, we're going to go to a break. But, Greg, uh, let's close out this Biden White House discussion with this segment with your back to back college championship Georgia Bulldogs turning down a visit to the White House on June 12th. Yeah. And uh, what was interesting about it to me was that Republicans were spiking the football over that, turning it into a political argument, saying that, you know, I saw um, Congressman Mike Collins, Senator, former Senator Kelly Leffler, both basically say the same thing, go dogs, about that decision, Um, you know, trying to politicize something like this, where, frankly, and Professor Gillespie knows this uh, really well, I mean, it's really hard to schedule (laughs) events like this. And imagine trying to schedule a, a big, you know, a college trip to Washington to visit the president of the United States in the middle of a, you know, crazy busy schedule that he has uh, with a football season to contend with. I can tell you that White House officials have told me that they they offered several dates earlier in the year, and they just could not get on the same page um, as uh, as UGA officials. June twelfth, um, you know, is is tough. A lot of students are obviously going to be out of school. And uh, the football season's right around the corner. So it just did not work out for UGA. Um, but, you know, we heard from the entire congressional delegation, Democrats and Republicans, earlier this year, urging the White House to give a formal invitation. They did do that. It just didn't work out. Yeah. Some of the players have moved on to professional teams. So <laughs> that, so too. that A lot of the players. That's it. And other so, teams. Dozens that's of players right. are transferring. One of them to my Pittsburgh Steelers. OK, I'll, I'll stop with that. Um, we've got to get to our final break. Um, we'll be right back on Political Rewind. And we'll talk about the nosedive in Georgia's revenue collections for April. And we'll tell you why after these messages. You're listening to Political Rewind. I'm Donna Lowry in for Bill Nygut. I'm back with Greg Bluestein, Andre Gillespie, and Matt Brown. And let's get to the money. Greg, your colleague, who I like to call the state budget guru, James Salzer, he reports that April revenues dropped more than 16 percent from last year, and that's a gap of $825 million dollars. Uh, The governor's office predicted this loss, but it also comes as the state just last week began sending out income tax rebates paid for with the record $6.6 billion state uh, surplus in fiscal 2022. Talk about that a bit. Yeah, we like to joke that that James knows more about the budget than a lot of lawmakers who vote on the budget know about the budget. And they agree. Um, (laughs) And they agree. Uh, But look, you know, as James has been reporting, 
This was sort of projected. The governor and top lawmakers have long seen this sort of decline um, coming. And so that's why the revenue estimate for the year, basically what, what, the, what Georgia's budget pens on, was about $3 billion lower um, this year going into it. So that means that Georgia's still on track for a surplus uh, at the end of the fiscal year. We can't be completely certain, but it looks like it's on track for a surplus. Um, there will be, you know, there will be, as Governor warned, there will be some tough spots coming up ahead. There's some holes in the budget. Um, but Georgia's also built up a surplus, you know, a record surplus this past fiscal year of more than $6 billion. Um, the rainy day fund is full and there's money beyond that. Um, you know, there's it's been a constant subject of debate about how that surplus should be used during the last campaign. Stacey Abrams said it should be used for generational changes, um, more robust pay raises, expanding Medicaid, um, all sorts of other programs. Governor Kemp thought that it should be used for rebates and tax cuts and, 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 and other programs that he's been able to put in place, at least in phases, um, since his reelection. Um, but this is something that other states will be grappling with too, and maybe states that haven't been as a fiscally conservative will have to deal with more cuts and, and layoffs and things like that. In Georgia, it does not seem like that is that is going to be coming because of the surplus and the situation we're in. Yeah, it doesn't look like it's going to be as dire because of the, um, well, first of all, capital gains, I guess, weren't, um, the losses weren't as bad as uh, predicted, but also that we we did have this nice surplus. So I know people who have been talking about getting their rebates and that, that kind of thing. But the, the reality, uh, Andra, is that, as Greg pointed out, this money, the that money would uh, has to go to a lot of things from schools, universities, um, law enforcement, corrections, all of that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and people shouldn't expect, given sort of the reduction in state revenue, people shouldn't expect that rebates are going to be sort of a regular kind of annual tradition in the state. And I think the challenge here is um, they in this, uh, the governor and the budget, you know, predicted and intended that there were going to be fewer revenues brought in um, because, you know, sort of in, in keeping with his judicial philosophy, he didn't want to collect more money than the state actually needed to be able to operate. But I think the question becomes is that this is also a sign of the health and vitality of the economy. And so if he kind of overcorrected and it turns out that this is also a sign that a recession might be looming, then that could actually end up causing problems in the future, right? Because people will be making less money, there'll be more people out of work. So you're going to collect uh, less money in terms of income taxes. And then we could actually, you know, end up in a position where you have to tap into the rainy day funds, which is not what you want to do in those types of situations. And so it's just a question of, you know, uh, you know, was the budget office able to correctly sort of predict uh, where sort of the budget needs and sort of where the revenues were going to come or whether or not that like it's not actually going to quite match up and there's going to end up being a shortfall at some point in the future. So, you know, part of this is about planning. And then part of this is also kind of a barometer of sort of the economic health of the state and whether or not we as a state and then larger as a country might be headed towards um, some more challenging economic time. So, I, you know, I think this is something people should take note of and pay attention to, as I'm sure they are already sort of look, paying attention to sort of like how the winds are shifting and blowing nationally when they're thinking about the economy overall.
Yeah. I I wonder, uh, Greg, does this drop in the revenue justify now the, the cuts, for instance, to the university system of Georgia? Does it do you know, do you do you feel that that some of the lawmakers will say, OK, so we did the right thing and or some of the vetoes that the, the governor made on some things that dealt with appropriations? Yeah, the governor probably would not say it was justified the cuts to the university system of Georgia, about $66 million or so, um, and others. Um, but he he did warn that there are some some dark clouds ahead. And, and look, he's been warning that, and other, other state leaders and economists have been lear- warning that um, for, for more than a year now. And so next year's budget process is going to be tough, um, and there could be more significant cuts, and then there could be um, attrition and and you know other other elements other other steps that state leaders take to rein in some state spending um, because we won't be used to the growth we've had the last couple of years but for the time being Georgia's still on track for a surplus and still has a very robust sur- um, uh, r- robust surplus already in the bank and so Georgia's financial situation is probably better off than a lot of other states. Yeah, and I'm sure the Democrats will be talking a lot about that. Matt, I just want to know if you've seen an, a national trend um, when it comes to these uh, income tax collections, in particular in our state, we're off an additional one point, uh, a little about about a billion dollars, uh, 32% in April. But some say that number is part of a national trend. Um, what can you tell us? Right. I definitely think that in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic, a lot of states actually found themselves with more money than they know what to do with, because the situation was such that, you know, federal stimulus had basically come in. And for a lot of states ranging from, you know, very, very conservative states, um, such as Alabama and Mississippi, um, to, you know, liberal California, um, folks were dealing with more money for a variety of reasons than what they were expecting to deal with um, from the 2021 to 2020, from the 2020 to 2022 period. So I think that that's something that's important to note that as we come out of that period, um, revenue across the country has been going down. And it's something that a lot of states are going to be grappling with as we're looking at a certain type of economic headwind. Though, um, as James has um, reported, and as we've noted here, you know, purchasing is still strong in Georgia. Employment is still very strong in Georgia. Corporate tax is still very strong in Georgia. So so the revenue streams that the government here is relying on are, are still very, very robust. And that is something that um, is going to be the real question all across the country for states is, you know, are businesses still investing in your state? Are people still having the ability to do commerce in your state? Those are going to be the questions that I think are going to determine whether or not a state's going to be able to weather, um, you know, whatever economic headwinds we see coming. Yeah. Andre, real quick, uh, your comments on this. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I don't, this isn't my area um, of expertise. And so I understand uh, what the what the governor is trying to do in keeping with his philosophy. He's not trying to expand services. He's not trying to expand the reach of government. And so if he sees government taking in more money than it needs, then he wants to return that money to the people. I think the question becomes is, if there's an economic downturn, have you given so much money back to, to, to the people that all of a sudden the state then doesn't have money to be able to operate at a time where it's going to have to meet more needs and where it might need to expand more? And so, that you know, it's a really sort of fine, delicate dance and trick. And so it's just a question of whether or not they can hit the numbers right and whether or not their projections are, are going to update and stay accurate with the changing sort of economic climate in the state, good or bad. Okay. Well, good discussion by all of you today. Thank you for for joining me in Bill's absence. (laughs) I appreciate it. Um, But that's all the time we have for today's show. And thanks to Greg Bluestein. 
Andre Gillespie, Chauncey Alcorn, Matt Brown for joining our panel today. I'd also like to thank the producers, Natalie Mendenhall, Chase McGee, engineers, Victoria Evans-Cash, and Buddha Lamb. Uh, and a little preview of what you can expect tomorrow and Friday from Political Rewind from this team. Thursday, Bill Nygut is in a conversation with leaders about gun violence. And please note this conversation took place before last week's tragic Midtown shooting. And on Friday, Bill sits down with Sumaya Khalifa. She is founder of the Islamic Speakers Bureau in Atlanta. So for now, I'm Donna Lowry. Thanks for tuning in.